I love cooking and doing cooking in service. Um, just getting nice rush and getting a lot of food on and getting it out all, all, all right or all, all beautiful. And just seeing, especially seeing the pork, when I mean, you're cooking the pork, it cracks up nicely. It's just, it's like beautiful. It's very, like an artwork, a live artwork in progress. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Nose-to-tail butchery has become a feature of many kitchens. The understanding and ability to use the entire beast, every last bit, to not only deliver amazing eating experiences, but to be mindful of sustainability and respecting the animal too. It's been a real feature and approach of chef Lee McDivitt over his whole career, who has carved out an amazing career with an incredible knack of using every part of the pig. Lee, how are you? Good, thanks. Yourself? I'm good. It's good to get you on the show. It's it's fascinating seeing your career and the importance the pig has played in that with your ability to use sort of every element in different jobs you've had. What, what's the fascination with pig for you? With the pig, well, it's just a love affair, I suppose. Learning how to use the pig properly, then with the chefs I've worked with and the training and the awesomeness, what the pig can do. Was was there a moment um, that you can share with us where you kind of broke down a pig for the first time and realised its versatility and what you could do with it? First time, yeah, the suckling pig was the first time and um, breaking it down. Um, I think I was working with John Evans at the time and um, we are breaking it down and every element, you know, especially in French cookery, you know, like you got the terrines, then you got the steaks, then you got the heads you can make uh, croquettes and sausages and, yeah, the blood can maybe a sauce, then uh, make another sausage with the blood. Then it's like, yeah, it's like the best best food costume you can do with a pig. <laughs> well, I want to explore sort of the different cuts and some of the dishes that you've created over the years, but um, take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? Well, well I was the youngest son of two, uh, three boys, and um, the parents were always working, working overtime, and every time they had to work overtime, there will be a phone call around 5 o'clock, 5.30, letting us know they're going to be late and I need to get dinner on because the older boys had to study for the exams. And because I was the youngest, I was like, do this, do that, <laughs> start cooking, break down the mints, and um, get the directions over the phone when they're on, when they're on the way back. Yeah. <laughs> what, what sort of things did you cook then? Well, I remember making was a lot of bolognese because um, especially Friday was bolognese day. So a lot of bolognese, I had to fork the mints because my mum liked the mints very fine. So I had to fork it and brown it with a fork and that was like it take hours. Then, um, yeah, cooking the potatoes, lamb chops, which I hated because they're all coated in the uh, double breadcrumb back in the day. And um, plum sauce, which my dad loved. And, um, yeah, just, that's how I started cooking. Then, um, then I started doing it in my elective in the 11 and the 12. Then I thought it was always a fun way to get a study cooking. Tell us about those first sort of steps into the the industry. Where, where did you do your apprenticeship and what, what was it like? Well, apprenticeship, well, I started with, um, I've done my whole apprenticeship with Maravale. Like I got a job at 19, in 1999. I was 17 at Slipping, working under Adrian Way, Keg Red Man 54, we used to call him. Um, he used to be Italian, modern Italian in Slipping. And it was good because it was only 
my first jobs were Monday to Friday as a chef, as an apprentice chef, which was unheard of. Uh, I was sleeping back then or changed to the K bar. Then it was like a nightclub on the weekends. So that was really good. Then I got transferred, when Est opened, transferred to CBD Hotel. And that's when I started learning about hats, when we got a hat there. With Adrian Way, then changed when he left, went to John Evans. When he left, I went to um, a few other people, I suppose. Can't remember. But yeah, then I worked in every restaurant they had at the time from Ravel, about eight years. Yeah, mostly because most of the restaurants I was in, like CBD, weekends off, um, as an apprentice, which was amazing, having a life. But then. When I left Maribel, there's no such thing as not having weekends off anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Take us back to those eight years with Maryvale. Do you have any stories um, of moments in time and the influence it had on you? Um, yeah, so I was because I was living in Camden at the time, so I had to catch a train, and I was always nervous because you had to get in by ten, set up by twelve because you're always doing lunch and dinner. So I was always nervous not getting because I was never ready in time and I was always in trouble. So I always come in an hour early or two hours early just to get my prep done. And um, that was a big, big learning curve there. Then um, not making mistakes and owning up your own mistakes was a big thing. Like when I used to, I used to hide it when I was an apprentice. Like, but used to, like, but then as I like, caused more problems, then you're not learning. Then, then after that, realize you know if you make a mistake, the whole team goes down. So. It was a big, big learning curve, but the biggest thing I loved was like we're a big, big family. Like it was like no one left for four years working together, so that was a big thing for me. There became a second family. When when you left Maryvale, tell us about sort of what you did and sort of the um, real pivotal sort of moments over those com- those next couple of years. Um, I left Maryvale. I went to what, Pello. Pello. That was two hats at the time. That was my first two hour wow. restaurant. Yeah. And I um, was the executive sous chef there. And um, finally, yeah, just working in those levels and those kitchens and refining your skills was the toughest thing I find back then. And um, what else? After I left Maryvale, oh, I went to the Three Weeds, went back to work in John Evans. I worked for him like three times. Yeah, I think he was the biggest highlight of my career how his techniques taught me all the techniques and done it properly and gave, spent time with me. It was a really, really good relationship. Well, tell us a bit about that relationship. Do you have any stories of those moments in time and um, sort of what the knowledge he transferred over to you? Well, the stories um, was, well, what can I say? There was always instances with other chefs, like seeing mistakes happen and stuff like that. Um, and people not following the right protocol and mincing their hands was the biggest one I saw. Um, not, yeah, with their hand going to the mincer and smashing all their fingers and um, and putting silly things during service, like when you're rushing and someone putting a stock on to heat up and realise they didn't take it out of the white bucket, still in the white bucket, and it's on the heat. And then the white plastic melts. Seeing all that stuff was funny. But then you're learning, you know, the pressure of the kitchen at that time was a lot more, a lot harder than it is these days. 
I'd probably say. You mentioned three weeds and you made a bit of a name for yourself there. T- tell us about how you got that gig and, and what it was like. Yeah, well, I was the sous chef for uh, John Evans at the time. He was the head chef. He left to go um, down Barrel Way. So then I had opportunity, I applied for the job. Then the, the owners gave me the, the chance to be the head chef. And I was quite young at that time, probably 24 or 25, can't remember. And they gave me the go and um, it was scary, to be honest. But um, with all the knowledge, I was trained in the back of house with the invoices and, and the costings, it made it pretty easier with that, that knowledge, what John taught me in the back of house. Then um, just growing into the role and not doing the stupid mistakes as a young hotted head chef, been yelling and screaming and stuff like that. I remember one instance I lost control and threw all the plates off because the sushi at the time just threw something on the plate and then I just threw all the plates off and that was when I realised that was a bit too far. You feel bad afterwards, didn't have to happen and just more communication back in the day was probably needed. How, how did you change yourself to... Um... You just feel bad and it's like it doesn't need to do that Then the whole kitchen's... You can't really come back from that. Then you have to sit down and, you know, go through what happened and apologise, everyone apologise to each other and realise losing your temper does not make things better. Uh, But I think it's always a learning curve for every chef. I think they go through that learning curve. As a young, hot-headed, you want to be the biggest new kid on the block. You mentioned at the top of the show about... um sort of that moment sort of where you started doing whole beast butchery and really exploring the pig more and learning more about it. Who's been really influential uh, on you in that regard? Well, I'd say the pork star people. Um, when getting that award and they start working with you more as well and um, he gets to learn a bit more about the farms. They show you the farms. They show you a bit more. Um, Kylie and all that and um, yeah then learning yourself and going in depth and what it can do for you then how the customers start appreciating it more then they start selling more so I remember selling 12 pigs in one week and that was all broken down into small cuts so that was probably the height most suckling pigs I sold in one week then doing the whole pig nose to tail and selling that over a month was uh, really good as well. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. What's what sort of dishes were you creating and discovering? Well, pork steaks was a good one. Which um, when I was at the vicar doing pork steaks with uh, fermented quince and um, kohlrabi, that was a real winner. Doing dredge and those pork steaks, pork shoulder steaks, then um, making burgers, pork burgers, and then back to the terrines and croquettes. And, um, yeah. You've done all sorts of things uh, over your career, particularly in the last 10 years, from owning your own place to working with other people. What's been the real highlights for you? Highlights is when you're you're working by yourself and running your own venue, it's like probably the hardest thing but the biggest learning curve as well. Um, Because at the end of the day, it's buck stops with you. You've got to do everything from cleaning to the accounting to – cooking to uh, mentoring and closing down 
they were, they were long days. Then going to the markets as well. I remember I went 18 hours in one day. Then left the stock pot on. Then almost burnt down the restaurant <laughs> before I began, came in. And I was sleeping above the restaurant. And it's like, what the hell's going on downstairs? Um, yeah, that, that was that was good learning curves there. But yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't probably do it again by myself. Um, running running your own business, it's just very hard. Before you know, you got to have a lot of money behind you to you know help before the small things. Has there, have there been um, some venues you can tell us about um, where you've been the head chef and created a food program for them um, in the last sort of five years that um, really excited you? Oh, well, I just left the Bistro Rex. We've done a really good food program there, nose to tail program, um, which we've done up to five animals nose to tail, which was um, really easy to do, French cooking. Uh, and the program there, it was like every every week you have a different kind of meat. We sell until that sells out. Then you can move to the next cut, the next cut, until you sell the whole animal. Then you can break down into all different burgers again, then more terrines and more more French cuisine. I find very easy for nose to tail. Are there is there any sort of particular cut um, that, that you favour and a dish that you've created with it that you can tell us about? Oh, that's going to be a hard one. <laughs> There's so many to choose from. Um, the last last dishes I was probably doing was draging the pork rack and um, roasting that, then serving that with like a cavados and blue cheese sauce, very Parisian French. Um, doing mud crab and uh, pork spring roll. That was one a few years ago. That was really popular. Um, also, just taking the whole suckling pig, just butterflying and boning the whole pig out whole, then rolling whole suckling pig into a porchetta. That was that was challenging. First time I'd done that by myself. You're known as one of the hardest working chefs, but you've had some real challenges health-wise over the last couple of years. Tell us a bit about that and um, sort of how you've built your career back up. Oh, uh, yeah, well, so when was that? This was just got back from Tasmania from the farm tour. I got quite sick, then um, I stopped breathing and I was in hospital for quite a while in ICU. Yeah, um, that was probably the scariest thing in my life, working because obviously I burnt my burnt the candles on both ends too much. Then a common cold just stopped, just stopped my lungs from working. And I was in the hospital for like four or five weeks in ICU for most of it. Um, told my wife I was lucky to come out of it because the last time, if it happens again, I probably won't because they'll don't put me in a coma to get me out of the, uh, sh- the system, what was happening to my body at the time, which was very scary. Then after that, I went straight back to, <laughs> straight back to work, but um, in a capacity of more of an executive role. But then I've always fall back into going on the line cooking again. Um, something I probably can't stop doing because I love it so much. But that was that was, that was a scary moment. Then um, then now in sleep apnea as well from that really made it hard waking up in the mornings and doing early shifts. So I only do night shifts now. So I love doing night shifts anyway, but mornings, uh, it's very hard to wake up. What sort of impact has uh, did that scare have on you and your approach to life and your career? Well, I was too, too young, too young to go away. <laughs> Thinking it was like, I haven't really 
done much except for work, 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 and everywhere I go is just work, work, work. Then the wife told me, you know, you've got to cut back, you know, because otherwise I won't be around much longer if I keep on pushing 70 hours every week. So listening to her, which I say I do, but I know, but I always go back to doing work, work, work. <laughs> have you found some sort of balance there, though, too? Um... Oh, yeah, I have now, especially when COVID happened, because obviously if my lung damage, if I got COVID, that would be the end of me straight away. Um, but lucky I never even got, got it, which was good. Um, that was very good. But then I'll re rallying our lives and... She telling you know you got to stop working so much you know you got you got to put all of those extra hours in you know it's like I'm hiding in my work I don't know why but uh, you're just hiding there and just working just creating it's a bit of a passion it's hard to do stop doing what you love I suppose but realizing I damage my lungs it's hard to breathe these days because I push myself too much realize there is more life to to what just work. I can still do what I do without pushing too hard. Has that made you consider sort of what the next roles are more um, or taking a more considered approach to what they might be? Yeah, seeing, what's, seeing what you can do out there at the moment, just doing some consulting work. Um, then there's always, I'm getting phone calls all the time, people want stuff for them and it's like I'm always saying yes to everyone because I don't want to disappoint anyone. But now I was like, I'm saying no to a few people. I'm just taking it taking it easy for the next couple of months and um, reevaluate and see what's what I'd like to do. You mentioned that you've um, visited quite a few pig farms and you, you really do love having a connection with the grower. Do you have any stories of those farm visits and what it was like? Yeah, well, um, especially when I was out in the Vicar working closely with the Acadia farms there. Um, which was mostly game farm that way, Miranda Park. We were closely with them with this because I use all their suckling pigs. But um, before I used to work near with, a lot with Near River Farmer. Um, near River, their pork was really amazing. Um, he, he supported me when my first restaurant he used to come out. He'd deliver, drive out, what, two hours just to deliver a suckling pig to me. So um, that was a good relationship back then with the New River people and going out to their farms, seeing their farm, doing cooking. There's cooking um, cooking on the farm for guests and stuff, which was really good. And um, seeing the pigs, seeing how, what they go through. And it's just, yeah, it's just a love affair for the pig, I suppose. You've been involved in um, so many different kitchens and consulted to different operations as well. But tell me a little bit about your food and creating a dish. What's, what is your approach? Well, what I just depends what I see. Like I, I like going very old, old, old school techniques. What people aren't using anymore, then making it new again. Like with my sausages, like if I make sausages, it'll be with the duck heads and the chicken heads with the heads attached, and that's filled with could be some pork mince in there, some bone marrow and some foie gras stuffed in the whole necks. Um, yeah, just bringing all the old, old cooking stuff new again. That's what I find doing. And I just loved the whole breaking down the whole beast and time myself and see how quick I can do a whole beast. I can do, I think, 12 minutes or 10 minutes was the last one I've done, 10, 11 minutes, breaking down a whole beast. 
That's extraordinary. Tell us about breaking down a whole beast. What what's what do you need to be mindful of, and and how did what is your approach? Yeah, well, firstly, if you've never done it before, never rush it because you will cut into somewhere you don't want to cut into. Then you'll lose some portions. Then you'll don't want to cut into the fillet. You don't want to cut off off some of the back and leave too much of the meat on the on the spine. Um, yeah, so I start off taking the head off, then I start from the back legs, then the shoulders, then I take the rib cage out, then go through the that way. But yeah, it's like I've if you're not thinking about it, you slip your fi- your knife, you'll cut into the fillet, then you lost a portion, then it's like, damn it, all that time wasted. I've seen uh, many videos of you on online cooking all sorts of um, pork dishes and and also getting some pretty incredible crackling. Do you, do you have any tips or secrets for getting the best crackling? Okay, with this, if you do cycle pig, that's always the best crackling for that is always to hang it and dry it after you brine it for a couple of days. Then the skin will get a bit more tighter. Then you pan fry that with hot oil and butter and leave it on the pan so that will get nice and nice crick. Uh, crackling that way, but it's very thin and light crackling. But um, when you're using um, uh, the bigger pigs, the pork, um, the highest the heat, the better. Um, after you brine it and dry it as well, um, and then you put a tray above it, just like just above it, so it bounces off hotter, so that it lifts the skin off off the flesh. Then it gets air underneath it. Um, that's how, then that comes up. Then then you just turn it down once it pops up. So then you get a nice even even crackling. Then when you're carving it, you'll be you got the meat there off the bone. Then you can put your hand in between the crackling, and your fist can fit straight through it. And it's like a big half moon shape. It's all aerated that way. Yeah. It's all about making making sure it's just got the right dryness to it after. a Two, no more than two days usually hanging in the in the courtroom after that's been brinded. You mentioned quite a few different farmers there and also different sizes of pigs with the sucklings and the, and the larger pigs as well. What, what do you look for in regards to um, pork and, and from a pig when you want to create different things such as terrines or for a dish? Do you, is there different fat contents or what are you looking for? Um, well, I like to use the Birkenshire for my terrines because uh, it's got the nice marbling already inside the skin, uh, inside the flesh, sorry. Um, with the terrines, I always I probably use the back legs for that because that's the easiest to mince and it's the, usually the toughest too, so you mince that through. Then when you're mincing it through, I, you just well, – I just you, 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 there is a ratio as you can do, but I just use mine by eye. Then you get the extra back fat and you put it through. And I just have a nice white and red colour. Um, just a little bit more, probably eat, I like it a little bit eat, just under even, so a bit more red meat. Then it's got a lot of white specks through it full of fat, so it just absorbs and bees nice and moist. Um, you mentioned you just finished up um, at Bistro Rex and there's all sorts of things on the horizon. What, what's your plan for the next six months to a year? Uh, at the moment, I've just got some consulting jobs I'm doing uh, in the rocks. Um, then I've got some things I'm looking at. I've got two people up. One wants me to do a wine bar and one wants me to do a bistro. One in uh, Melsh Bay, which we're looking at tomorrow with this, uh, with, uh, this owner. 
then uh, another another guy wants a friend of mine wants me to go look at a place where he wants to open a wine bar and do all the charcuterie what I do and so all the charcuterie through a wine bar. Tell us a little bit about the charcuterie. It's what what sort of charcuterie you have, have you made and and um, is your favourite? Uh, I like my oh terrine's probably the one I've been doing at the moment is the pork country terrine with whiskey apricot jam. Um, nice not marbling terrine. What just melts in your mouth? Um, then uh, what else? Drawing out some sausages like um, for salamis and stuff like that. We've done that before. Uh, a lot of hit and miss on the salami. That's very hard to find when you're doing that by yourself. There's just uh, there's a lot that can go wrong, especially when you're aging it yourself. Um, you just have to get the right everything mixtures together. But oh yeah, I prefer making sausages and terrines. Um, that's what I like doing mostly, and just getting the fat content just right so it just melts in the bread when you when you eat it. You mentioned you find yourself in executive chef roles and just can't keep yourself away from the pans and being on the line. Um, what is it that you love about what you do? Oh, I love cooking and doing cooking in service. Um, just getting nice rush and getting a lot of food on and getting it out all, all, all right or all, all beautiful. And just seeing, especially seeing the pork, I mean, cooking the pork, it cracks up nicely. It's just, it's like beautiful. It's very, like an artwork. A live artwork in progress, I find. And I find it relaxing. Well, Lee, it's um, great to catch up and an honour to have you on The Crackling today to hear a bit of your story. Good luck with the new projects and um, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, buddy. See you later. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.